0: Okay, we are continuing together and hopefully concluding today our study of the Lord's Supper in chapter 30 of our Confession of Faith, which is our church's doctrinal statement. Now, in our study together of this uh, chapter, we have looked at the institution of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 1. We looked at the nature of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 2 we considered the procedure for the Lord's Supper in paragraphs 3 and 4 we talked about the nature of the elements of the Lord's Supper the bread and the wine in paragraphs 5 and 6 we talked about the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 7 and then last week we begin to consider together the unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper in paragraph 8 now <clears throat> What we saw in paragraph eight is that there are some people who are unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. And even among those who are worthy to partake, they may partake in an unworthy fashion. And so uh, this should not be something that we think is discriminatory. Um, We would say that a French citizen would be unworthy to say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. uh, Simply because he's not an American citizen and for him to pledge allegiance to the American flag when he's not in loyalty to America but rather to France it would be unworthy for him to do that. And We're not saying we hate him and we're not saying he's evil. We're just saying his allegiances are somewhere else. It's unfitting for him and unworthy of him to pledge allegiance to a flag uh, that he doesn't have any loyalty to. And an American could also pledge allegiance to the flag in an unworthy fashion if he did it in a way for example of mocking. Even though he was an American citizen and from that point of view it was appropriate for him to say the Pledge of Allegiance if he said it in such a way as to make a mockery of the nation and the flag, maybe used a lot of sarcasm or something, then he would be pledging in an unworthy manner. Well, it's the same way with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a ceremony uh, which certain people are worthy to partake. And it's those people who are the disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. Because when you partake in the supper, you're pledging loyalty and love to Jesus Christ you're expressing faith in him and you're saying you believe in him as your Lord and Savior well if none of that is true of you then it's unfitting for you to partake of those elements because um, you're saying something by your actions that are not true uh, in your life and it's also equally possible that even a Christian could partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion if he did it in a way that was inappropriate. So that's what's behind the thrust of paragraph 8. Let's read it together. We'll review what we covered last week, and then we'll hopefully conclude uh, the latter part of the paragraph um, in our subsequent teaching. Now notice paragraph 8 of chapter 30. It says, All ignorant and ungodly persons... As they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. And so this talks about the fact that the unsaved, those who are not Christians, uh, are unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. So, for example, if an atheist showed up, or if a Muslim showed up, or if a Buddhist showed up, or just someone who just is a non-believer in Christ, they would not be worthy or fit to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, he then talks about the fact that the saved, those who are in fact Christians, may also partake in an unworthy manner. Notice it says, yea, whosoever... And that word whosoever broadens the reference from the category of those who are non-Christians now to include anybody, even Christians. Yea, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. Now, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to... um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we're going to be spending some time together and um, in in discussing uh, the matter that's contained in the paragraph. Now, we saw last time that only believers in Jesus Christ as their Savior um, are to partake of the Lord's Supper. We saw that was true for four reasons. We saw that it was true because of clear biblical precedent. Every time the Lord's Supper is recorded as being observed in the scriptures, it specifically declares or indicates that only believers in Christ, only Christians were partaking. Um, We also saw that only believers should partake because of the declarations we're making. We're saying that we believe certain things about Christ. We're saying we've experienced a personal relationship with Christ. And if people don't believe that Jesus is God, they don't believe that he died for their sins, they don't believe he rose from the grave and he's coming again, then they shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper because we're saying we believe all that stuff when we um, partake. And then, of course, we are saying that we have received Christ as our Savior, just like when we receive the elements into our bodies, into our mouths, we are declaring symbolically we have received Christ into our lives and that he dwells in us. Now, if we don't believe those things and we haven't experienced those things, we shouldn't participate in a ceremony that says that we have. And then thirdly, we saw that only believers are uh, fit to partake of the Lord's Supper, not only because of clear biblical precedent and because of the declarations we are making, but because of the activity we're engaging in. There's a reason why this ceremony is called communion. The word communion means to have fellowship with. And so while we're participating in the Lord's Supper, we are communing in our hearts with Jesus Christ. And if someone doesn't have inward heart fellowship with Jesus Christ, then to participate in a ceremony that facilitates that process and is an expression of that process um, is really inappropriate. An unbeliever has no communion with Christ. He's estranged from Christ. He's shut off from Christ until he repents and believes. But as long as he's a stranger to Christ and he is shut off from Christ, he certainly cannot have communion with Christ in the communion service. Okay, And then the fourth reason we saw that unbelievers should not partake and only believers should is because of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a declaration of it is a token of the new covenant. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so to participate in the sign and pledge of the covenant, you must be a party to the transaction of the covenant. And the new covenant is God's promise to save his people from their sins by the sacrifice of his son for their sins in order that they might have both the transformation of their natures and the forgiveness of those sins. And so someone who's not a participant in the new covenant through faith in Christ certainly has no business participating in the ceremony, which is the token of that covenant and the symbol of it. So these are the reasons we adduced last time as to why Unbelievers should not and must not and ought not partake in the Lord's Supper. It is only for believers. And so today then we want to talk about how that not only are unbelievers unworthy of partaking in the Lord's Supper, but even believers, you and I, could be guilty of partaking in an unworthy fashion. And so... What we want to do together is read 1 Corinthians 11, verses 20 to 34, and then we're going to talk about the substance of the uh, preparation that we need to have for the ordinance in order to partake in it um, uh, in a worthy fashion. Now notice 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20 to 34. When you come together, therefore, into one's place into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, or that could be translated, it is impossible to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, here's the reason why they're not properly celebrating the Lord's Supper, for in eating everyone takes before the other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken, what have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show or preach or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we should judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. If any man hunger, let him eat at home you come not together into condemnation and the rest will I set in order when I come. Now, the question arises, how are we to prepare ourselves to participate in this ordinance as believers? Is there anything that we need to consider before we partake of the Lord's Supper? Is merely being a believer in Jesus Christ enough to worthily partake? Of the Lord's Supper? And the answer is no. You have to have something more than being a true believer. You have to have uh, at least uh, three requirements, and we want to look at those requirements together. We want to see that there must be proper attitudes, and these proper attitudes didn't exist at Corinth. Clearly, having read this passage to you, you can see these folks had problems. Now, they were viewed as Christians and they were treated as Christians and they were spoken to as Christians. But as Christians, they partook in an unworthy fashion and as a result, incurred the judgment of God on themselves. So notice then, first of all, the warning issued. The warning issued. Now, the warning issued is in verse 27. And verse 29, verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29, he that eateth drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So, Paulish is a warning here. And he says to us, we have to eat in a worthy fashion if we eat unworthily then we incur certain liabilities uh, from God. Now, what does it mean then to eat unworthily? Well, all of us can sit here and say, you know what, I am unworthy to eat the Lord's Supper because I'm a sinner. And that's true. None of us are worthy of salvation. None of us are worthy of the favor and the love of God. The fact that he gives us those things is a gift of grace. We don't deserve it. What we deserve is to all be in hell for our sins. Okay? So in that sense, if we're going to say to be unworthy means to be a sinner, well, nobody's ever going to be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper, and nobody could ever partake of it. So that's clearly not what the unworthiness that is being spoken of here is. When you come to communion service and you think about yourself and how you have behaved in the past week or month or whatever, and you look at your failings and you look at your sins and you say, oh, I'm not fit to eat the Lord's Supper because I've done so poorly in my walk with the Lord this last week or month or, or however long it's been, that is not What the passage is talking about. All right? Well, what is it talking about? Well, to eat and drink unworthily is to partake in a manner that violates the meaning and the significance of the ordinance. Let me repeat that. To eat and drink unworthily means to partake in a manner that violates. It's meaning and significance. Now, when you look at the context, it always gives us the answers to our questions. What does it mean to eat and drink unworthily? Well, verses 20 and 21 tell us what the unworthiness was that these people were guilty of. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, it is impossible to eat the Lord's Supper. Why? Because of the selfishness. Verse 21, for in eating, everyone takes before another his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. Now, what they did is they had a collective meal during the service, which then morphed into the Lord's Supper. And what happened is the wealthier people brought food and had plenty and they brought their own little picnic basket and they sat there and they ate. And, and the poor guy over here who didn't have anything, he came with nothing. And the rich guy sat over here and he ate all his food and gorged himself while the poor guy was sitting here and had nothing to eat and was hungry. And even when the time came to do the bread and the wine, he didn't even have bread and wine. And so what you had was gross selfishness on the part of the people and their selfishness made it impossible to celebrate the selfless sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 22, what have you not houses to eat and drink in? Obviously, they were meeting in a church building at this point in time and not in a house. He was saying, if you're going to eat, eat at your homes before you come to church, because the Lord's Supper is not about meeting your needs for nutrition. It's not about satisfying your hunger pains. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic ceremony, not attached to the meeting of one's needs for nutrition. And so to come unworthily involves two things. It involves improper attitudes. For example, if someone comes with an attitude of superstition and thinking that the ceremony itself gives grace rather than the one it represents and imbues the bread and the wine with some um, superstitious meaning uh, that it is actually the body and the blood of Christ or that there's some magic. And if I just partake these elements, you know, my bad back will get better. Uh, Because there's some magical healing power in these elements. So if we come with an attitude of superstition, that's an unworthy attitude. If we come with an attitude of irreverence, it's like, hey, you know, uh, they're passing the bread and wine. It's snack time, you know, and it's like you treat it like um, it's some sort of a joke. Um, Or if you come with an attitude of careless passivity, it's like, well, you know, this will be over in a few minutes. I guess I'll, here comes the bread and wine. Well, yeah, I guess I'll take it. And But, you know, I really can't wait to get hunting on Monday. You know, and it's like, you're just disengaged and your mind is elsewhere and you're totally passive and you're not making any effort, whatever, to commune with Christ, just going through the motions. These are all improper attitudes or we can come with improper actions. And that's what Paul addresses here. The selfishness that was manifested or the disorderliness that's manifested. Uh, people acting and behaving in such a way during the service as to distract from the significance and meaning. So. Charles Hodge had this to say, he says to eat or drink unworthily is to come to the Lord's table in a careless, irreverent spirit without the intention or desire to commemorate the death of Christ as the sacrifice for our sins. In other words, there's no entering into the meaning of the ceremony in our hearts and in our minds, but rather we have a careless or irreverent attitude and we're not engaged and have no desire to commemorate the death of Christ. So, if that's what it means to come unworthily, to come worthily is to come in a manner fitting to the requirements of the situation. Now, When I walk in the room, you don't stand up, and you shouldn't. But when you're in a courtroom and the judge walks in, everybody stands, right? Because that is behaving in a manner that is fitting to that situation. It's like when you're at a wedding and the bride is ready to walk down the aisle, what happens? Everybody stands up. Why? Because that's a a statement of honor. To that person and to this ceremony, you're behaving in a manner fitting for the ceremony. Okay? Now, if when the bride was walking up the aisle, somebody stepped out the aisle and walked back down the aisle because they needed to go to the bathroom, they would be acting in a manner unfitting. Now, is there anything wrong with getting out of your chair and going to the bathroom? No. But you don't do it in that fashion. It's unfitting. It's unworthy. So, to come worthily means to come in a manner fitting to the requirements of the the situation. It means to come in a manner that is in harmony with the meaning and the significance of the ordinance. And the manner that is in harmony with the meaning and the significance of the ordinance is one of active mental involvement an attitude of reverence and a conduct of respect. That's what it means to come worthily. To come worthily means to come in a manner fitting to the requirements of the situation, to come in a manner that is in harmony with the meaning and significance of the ordinance. The manner is one of active mental involvement Proper attitude and proper conduct. All right? Now, if we come in an unworthy manner, like these people did, it says that we are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Notice what it says in verse 29, <clears throat> or verse 27, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, what it means is that. We are guilty of saying by attitude and action, when we come unworthily, we're guilty of saying by attitude and action that the Lord's body and blood are unimportant, that they are meaningless, and that they are of no value. You know, if when you're in a room and they're saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and you're sitting here texting on your cell phone while that's going on, instead of having your hand over your heart and saying the words, what are you doing by texting on your cell phone? What you're doing is saying by your attitude and action that the flag and the nation and loyalty to it are unimportant and meaningless and of no value to you. That's what you're saying. And in the same way, when you partake in the lord's supper in a superstitious irreverent passive selfish disorderly fashion any of those or all of them or any combination of them you're saying you know the lord's blood and the lord's body are unimportant and meaningless and of no value because to outrage the symbol is to outrage what it symbolizes. To mock the flag of the U.S. is to mock the country itself. And to mock the Lord's Supper by inappropriate actions, attitudes, and words is to mock Jesus Christ himself, whom it represents. And when we treat the Lord's Supper as though it has no value, we're treating Christ as though he has no value and his body and his blood have no value. And so when we say the body and blood of Christ is of no value, it is unimportant, and it is meaningless, and we say that by our actions of irreverence at the Lord's Supper, then we become guilty of discounting the necessity and importance and worth of Christ's death. And that's why it says in verse 29, He eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, Not discerning the Lord's body. And this judgment is the judgment of God. And the judgment of God comes on anybody who says the body and blood of Christ are meaningless. The body and blood of Christ are unimportant. The body and blood of Christ have no value. I could care less about the body and blood of Christ. And when you have those attitudes, it brings you into the judgment of God. Because God will not tolerate irreverence towards his son. He has too much respect for his son to tolerate that. Now, that brings us then to a third point. We talked about what it means to be unworthy in our consumption. We talked about what it means to be guilty of the body and blood. Now, let's talk about what it means to be not discerning the Lord's body. Because that's what it says at the end of verse 29. Not discerning the Lord's body. That is not recognizing the fact that this meal is distinct from all others. That it has a significance and character that sets it apart in a special way. That it symbolizes Christ's sacrifice and his body and blood. When we fail to discern, when we see, you know, hey, there's bread and wine. There's something to eat. We're not discerning that, no, 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 no. wait a second. That's not just bread and wine. Those are symbols. You know, it's like when you look at the American flag and you go, there's a piece of cloth. It isn't just a piece of cloth. It's a symbol. And it's imbued, therefore, with much higher significance than if it were just a piece of cloth. You know, you find a piece of cloth, you you know, use it as a rag to wipe up the oil spill in, in the driveway. You don't use the American flag for that. Because if you do, you're not discerning the symbolic significance of that flag and the nation it represents. And so, what the problem here was in Corinth is that these people were approaching the Lord's Supper as something ordinary, something common, something unimportant as mere nutrition. Something to be selfishly gobbled down rather than viewing it with reverence and with honor. And so the Lord's Supper requires of us to discern that these elements are symbols of the body and blood of Christ. And we discern... Just like when we look at the American flag, we discern that that's a symbol of America and it stands for all that America is. And when you look at the elements, you say, those things are symbols of Christ and they stand for all Christ is. Everything he is in his body, everything he is in his blood and all he did by those means, it stands for all of that. And I discern that that's what these elements mean. In that sense, we discern the Lord's body in the elements. And so if we do eat and drink unworthily and thereby say that the body and blood of Christ is unimportant and meaningless and of no value, we don't discern the symbolic significance of what we're doing, then we incur judgment to ourselves even as believers when we partake in that fashion. There is danger both to the soul. Verse 27, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the soul. We incur guilt. And then verse 29, we incur judgment. He eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And of course, part of the judgment that these people experienced is that verse 30, for may this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. God chastised these people with physical illness and sometimes even death for their irreverence towards the Lord's Supper. So God takes this ordinance very, very seriously. And what he's saying is don't clown around about it. Don't view it with an attitude of superstition or irreverence or careless passivity or disorderliness. Think about what you're doing. Think about the one this represents and partake in that manner. So having seen then the warning issued, notice secondly the remedy prescribed. Verse 28, it says, But, in contrast, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now when it says let a man examine himself, once again pay attention to the context. Examine himself in relationship to what? Well, in relationship to eating and drinking in an unworthy fashion, that is, let a man examine himself as to his attitude towards the Lord's Supper and his conduct with reference to the Lord's Supper and get himself in a proper frame of mind and a proper attitude to properly respect and observe the ordinance. That's where the self-examination takes place. It's not about dragging out all of your sins that you've committed in the last month and beating yourself up over them. Let a man examine himself as to his attitude towards the meal itself, Let a man examine himself as his attitude towards the one represented at the meal. See, the Lord's Supper isn't about remembering your sins. The Lord's Supper is about remembering Jesus Christ. And your focus is on, am I remembering Him? And am I reverencing His ordinance? That's where the self-examination takes place. Do I know him as my Savior? Do I reverence him as my Lord and my God? Do I remember him with affection? And so we're to examine ourselves as to the manner in which we conduct ourselves and with the attitude with which we conduct ourselves. And having done so, the assumption is what that will eat. notice verse 28. It says, let a man examine himself. And so let him think of himself as being so unworthy that he will never eat and drink. Now it doesn't say that, does it? It says, let a man examine himself and let him eat. The assumption is not that he will abstain after self-examination, but that he will eat after self-examination. There is no reason to avoid the Lord's Supper because you recognize yourself as a sinner or as a really bad sinner. The Lord's Supper is for sinners but it is for sinners who come with humility and contrition for their sins and who are trusting in Jesus Christ's atonement upon the cross to cleanse them from sin. It is for sinners who see the meaning and significance of the meal that it is a time to remember Christ and his work on our behalf and that these visible elements remind us of him. I'm not saying that at the Lord's Supper, a person wouldn't think about how they've lived for the Lord in the past week or month. Certainly, that's a part of thinking about what Jesus did for us. I mean, we see the body and blood symbolized in the bread and the wine. What's that all about? Well, it's his atonement for sin. And if his atonement for sin means anything, it means we're sinners. And it means we recognize ourselves as such. And I'm not saying you wouldn't examine yourself and say, well, how have I been living for the Lord in the last week? But you see, that's not the issue that's wrapped up in the worthiness thing. And that's not the issue that's wrapped up in being guilty of the body and blood of Christ. That's not the issue that's wrapped up in receiving and incurring the judgment that is spoken of here. That's all wrapped up in our attitude towards the meal and the one it represents, and in our conduct at the meal, that it's appropriate to the significance of the ceremony. I've known people who, if they did pretty good in the last month with their walk of the Lord, they would partake. And if they didn't do very good, they wouldn't partake. And it was a way of punishing themselves and saying, you know, I've just done too bad. I don't deserve to partake. Well, you know, those people are really guilty of his works, righteousness, because if they think that they're morally good enough to partake, then they are legalists. They're relating to God on the basis of performance. And if they think their performance is good enough to make them worthy to partake of the Lord's supper, then you have to question whether they even understand salvation or not, because we don't come on the basis of our worthiness, our performance, how well we did. We come on the basis of Christ's invitation, Christ's command, and His performance, and how well He did in providing atonement and redemption for us. And so in the Lord's Supper, the focus is not so much on our sins as it is on Jesus Christ and what He has done with reference to our sins. And so any consideration of our sins while legitimate is subordinate to the consideration of Christ and what he has done for them. All right, are there any questions? Okay, well, I hope that that helps you be more liberated in your conscience when you come to the Lord's Supper. That you are coming worthily as long as you're coming with a proper attitude towards the ordinance and towards Christ. And it's not about what degree of sanctification you obtained or were able to exercise in the last month. All right, um, Caleb. Um, and besides that, uh, partaking of the Lord's Supper helps us draw near to Christ and helps us improve our walk with Him. Precisely. It's, it's an ordinance that conveys grace, not that the grace is in the elements, but the grace is in the interaction with Jesus Christ. Just like there's no grace in the Bible. I mean, it's just it's paper and print and ink, right? And binding and some leather and a piece of ribbon. There's no grace in that. The grace is in God, and this is the message when we understand it through which we receive grace, but um, not that we should treat the Bible with contempt any more than we would treat the flag with contempt or the Lord's Supper with contempt. But we need to not put our trust in objects. We need to put our trust in Christ. And to the extent that the objects lead us to Christ, those are great objects. I mean... The Lord's Supper and the Bible are great things. I don't want to minimize them, but let us not superstitiously put our trust in them, but in him. And as we do, then we are helped in our spirits to be stronger and better and more sanctified and more godly. And so by partaking in the Lord's Supper, um, you actually strengthen your ability to overcome your sins. Um, Abstaining is not a way to achieve that. It's actually an expression of unbelief to abstain and, uh, and self-righteousness. The only reason why one would abstain is if one says, I'm not a Christian. Um, and therefore, I shouldn't partake because just like you would say, I shouldn't. If, if you traveled to France and they had a, their pledge of allegiance to the French flag, would you take it? You wouldn't. You'd stand there, and you would be proper, and you wouldn't be disruptive. You would show respect for what they were doing, but you wouldn't do it. Because your loyalty is elsewhere. So it is with the Lord's Supper. Unbelievers, their loyalty is to themselves as God. Believers, their loyalty is to Jesus Christ as God. All right, and so therefore they partake of his table. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful ordinance and the understanding you've given to us of it in these past weeks and months as we have considered together this passage uh, in our confession, this chapter. Lord, we pray now as we move to the next chapter and begin to talk about eschatology and what happens to us after we die and uh, about the second coming of Christ, that, Lord, we would rightly understand these things and that we would be filled with hope and joy in believing at the eschatology, the outcome that we will enjoy uh, after death and throughout eternity. Father, I pray that understanding these things would move us to uh, thankfulness and humility and also to evangelize uh, others around us. But, Lord, we ask now that The Lord's Supper might be better understood and more precious to each of us as we participate in it. In Jesus' name, amen.